Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world around us, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have a great chat room. So, Rav, tell us all about it. We do have a wonderful chat room. Actually, um, one of the guests that you have coming on today was suggested by someone out of our chat room. So, uh, you know, it's definitely a two-way street here. You know, we share information and, yeah, we've got a really good show coming on today and we're going to have some fabulous chat going on. So do come join me. I'm at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Come in and say hello. All right. Now, since we have two guests today... I'm going to limit our spotlight of the week to a thought. One, you know, forwarded by a Chinese philosopher that I think is particularly profound. In our modern world where someone claims to know everything about something, a world full of specialists, a world sometimes devoid of meaning, but full of facts. Chuang Tzu challenged us with this provocative thought. Quote, The fish trap exists because of the fish. Once you've gotten the fish, you can't forget the trap. The rabbit snare exists because of the rabbit. Once you've gotten the rabbit, you can forget the snare. Words exist because of the meaning. Once you've gotten the meaning, you can forget the words. Where can I find a man who has forgotten words so I can talk with him? Close quote. Okay, every week I read some of your letters. <laughs> I can't. I can't go on. I can't. <laughs> I'm sitting here saying, huh? Okay, that's going to give me food for thought for quite a little while. <laughs> All right. I, I, no, you know, that is a very serious... I, I, I really do consider that to be something worthy of giving a good deal of thought to because we talk about a lot of things and we name them so you know we talk about electricity well how cool is electricity i throw my light switch on and it lights the night but i really don't understand electricity i accept its name you know this this is a this is a provoking kind of a thought that challenges us to get beyond what it is that we assign to these more superfluous, uh, you know, accoutrements we call meanings, you know? Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. I find it really Okay, but you almost split up. You, you thought I, w- I was going to ask you for a comment or something, oh, right? Thank God for that. <laughs> I would be most interested in the comments from everyone out there, so I would like to know what you thought of Eldon's thought of today. All right, well, it's a thought for the week, you know, but all right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show hosted Bruce and Sandy Tweedy, and for the first time since 1931, the waterless classes were played live on the radio. 
Shelley wrote, Wow, this gave me goosebumps. It was so beautiful. It even woke my puppy up out of a dead sleep, and he just came over and stared at me like, Wow, Mom, seriously, it sounds like angels singing. What a lost art. Only four sets in the world. Thank you for sharing this. Truly is like angel singing, isn't it, Raph? I thought so. Totally. Gwyneth wrote, I enjoyed the crystal music today. I remember hearing someone at church play beautiful music on glasses when I was very young. I hope the musicians are teaching this wonderful gift to young people. This talent needs to be shared. Thank you all for sharing this beautiful music with us. Glenn commented, I can definitely see this as pairing with meditation. The music demands our attention with laser-like focus in a way view, in a way few pieces can. Harmony wrote, I have never heard anything so rich in my life. What a special opportunity to hear both your interview and the Tweety's play. Tony wrote, Eldon, I was watching and listening to your YouTube talks all day yesterday. It's making a great positive impact on my life. Thank you for sharing all that info with the public. Well, thank you, Tony, and I would encourage all of you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll find it under Progressive Awareness, or you can go there and just search my name. You'll find it easily enough. Debbie wrote, I continue to be dazzled by the variety of guests and the quality of your radio shows. I don't know what I like best. Your intertalk programs are provocative enlightenment, but I'm glad I found you. Well, thanks, Debbie. We're glad you found us as well. And Mark wrote, on the radio show, Eldon read a comment made by a listener, which I would like to address. The comment is as follows, quote, the more research that is conducted on the species, the less it appears that morality is an individual burden. Social biology and environmental influences are the prime components of any discussion of morality, close quote. Now, continuing, Mark writes, according to such a view, much of our moral behavior is a result of evolution. As such, our moral behavior are adaptive responses or mechanisms which have come about through natural selection. Since evolution is driven at the group level, the evolution of our moral behavior has also been driven at this level. Thus, moral behavior is driven at protecting either the human species or a subgroup within that species, such as kin or tribe. Such a view of morality uses evolution to not only explain human morality, but that of many other animal species who seem to exhibit a similar type of moral behavior. In other words, much of our moral behavior was inherited from our distant ancestor primates. While the social biologist view of morality may well explain, at least to some degree, how our moral behavior evolved and manifests today, I'm not sure whether it's a good idea for us to limit our moralities to such a view. Such a view may sit well with other animal species whose behavior is largely automated by instinct and environmental conditioning. Humans, however, have a much greater capacity to think and thus to be more proactive in determining what human morality ought to be. End of letter. Well, you know, that's an excellent letter, Mark, especially in light of today's show and our second guest, Professor France DeWall, who I think is going to take exception to what you've said about animals just, um, you know, responding on instinct. But we'll get into his conversation and his research um, in the second half of the show. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your email to Eldon at eldontaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. We can't get all of your letters on the air, but they do impact our programming. And once again, we both appreciate and thank you for your feedback and continued support. 
All right, now here's a question for you. Something I addressed in my book, I believe. What exactly are the limitations of the mind? I mean, we have some very special abilities. You know, we, we can imagine something healing us, placebo or not, and it heals us. We have some very special folks with capabilities that amaze, like having photographic memory, playing music perfectly, and hearing it ju- after hearing it just once, or doing complex mathematical calculations in one's head. So the question is, does the human brain have latent, savant-like abilities? Dr. Alan Snyder of the Center for the Mind has suggested that temporarily impairing the left frontal temporal lobe in healthy subjects by low-frequency magnetic pulses could perhaps lead to savant-like mental abilities. But if so, where do they come from? I mean, do we have it encoded in our DNA? I mean, we... We, we understand math because it's a universal language and somehow within our DNA that language exists? Or do we get it out of what? The other? I mean, where does it come from? Most people think of savants like Kim Peek, the real Rain Man, who read more than 12,000 books and remembered everything about them. Peek, like most others, you know, with this sort of incredible ability, are typically born with some serious defects. It's almost like some sort of compensation might take place. Like, you know, there's a trade in some aspect of normal for the superhuman ability. But that's not always the case. Sometimes we even learn of acquired savantry, something called acquired savant syndrome. An accident left music man Derek Amato with a severe concussion and a surprising ability to play the piano. One theory is that his brain reorganized, making accessible existing memories of music. Another is that his brain no longer filters sensory input, enabling to hear individual notes rather than melodies. You know, neither of those theories satisfy me. I don't know about you. Will science, however, one day be able to unlock the genius within? Imagine what it might be like to suddenly experience acquired savant syndrome. You think that would change your life at all? Well, joining us today is a remarkable human being who experienced just this sort of injury. In 2002, two men savagely attacked Jason Padgett outside a karaoke bar, leaving him with a severe concussion and post-traumatic stress disorder. But the incident also turned Pageant into a mathematical genius who sees the world through the lens of geometry. In his delightful book, and it is a great read, Struck by Genius, Jason Paget reminds us of the potential for developing astonishing ability. As Daryl Truffitt, M.D., puts it, and I quote, quote, Acquired Savant Syndrome is an incredible phenomenon which points toward dormant potential, a little rain man, perhaps, within all of us. Jason Paget's experience affirms that medical marvel in a demonstrable and irrefutable way. His compelling story calls for even more urgent inquiry into the remarkable, optimistic manifestation which holds great promise for better understanding both the brain and human potential. Close quote. Well, on that, 
Let's get Mr. Pageant himself in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Jason Pageant. Hi, thank you for having me. It's indeed our pleasure, sir. You know, I, you, in, in looking at uh, this interview, I, you know, I'm thinking, well, what is this? Is guy? This has got to be, you know, the number one man on the planet in terms of mathematics. You know, he is the Einstein of our time. He is revolutionizing perhaps even how we will teach mathematics. How does how does it feel to be in that kind of a place today compared to say where you were just uh, you know ten years ago? It's very strange because uh, I can remember you know both. I, it's almost like having two lives. I remember the version before where all I did was goof off and literally I sold furniture and. And boutons and, and uh, went out every night, you know, to bars and, and goofed off with friends and chased girls. And that was like the sum total of life. And now it's done in this complete 180. And things I never thought I could understand are I can understand, and we all can, uh, when you look at it through the lens of math as pure geometry. And, and then look at it as equations later on, once you understand the basic geometry of some of these equations. You, you know, just so our audience kind of gets a picture about this, you tell us about, you know, Jason. You know, who were you as a child? Were you a good student in school? Did you have lots of friends? Were you an athlete? What were your ambitions? I mean, what did you want to be when you grew up? When I was a kid, it was, it was amazing. I really did not think much about it. I was I was an athlete. I wrestled. You know, I played some sports, and literally just goofed off. I did not crack a book in school. Um, in fact, I was in this one class. Uh, I remember it was to graduate. I graduated with the exact same amount of credits that you needed to graduate. And I was in this mythology class, and uh, there was a project due. And if you didn't turn in this collage, you literally could not pass the class. And uh, I had a friend, Larry, who always did all my homework. He was, we were best friends, and he let me copy off of his stuff. And anyway, the last day of class came, and I did. the lady says, turn in your collage. And, of course, I hadn't done it, even though we had had months, you know, of warning. And I was freaking out, thinking, I'm not going to be able to graduate. And my friend, Larry, walks up, opens his bag, and says, am I your best friend? And I said, yeah, why? And he goes, and he pulls out a second collage and says, I knew you wouldn't do yours, so I did too. And that's the reason I graduated is because of that guy. And, oh, cool. and, and that, that's a good, you know, uh, you know, quick look at basically how I was at that time. You know, I wasn't mean or anything, but I was very shallow, goofed off a lot. I had friends, but, you know, I wouldn't have graduated without them for sure. Are you still friends with Larry? Yeah, I still talk to him every once in a while. You know, maybe once every four or five years, I run into him because he's still in Alaska. He's in Alaska now. You know, Have you still. talked to him at all since this accident and this acquired savantry? Yes, he. Uh, we went through this period for about ten years where we didn't talk, and then finally we got in contact with each other, and this had all happened. And I remember just I was telling him about pi and about relativity, and he finally he goes, Jason, what the hell happened to you? And because he he was just shocked. I mean, he wasn't mad or anything. He just kept on saying, "I can't believe this is you." Because before it was literally, you know, when are we going to meet? Let's go out with these girls. You know, let's go out to this bar. I mean, that's we did. It. That's all we did. Uh, we lost him. 
All right. Well, we'll get we'll get him back here in just a quick second. You know, the thing that I like about uh, Jason, uh, I mean, right off the bat, is you know he's just a very, you know, kind of a guy that you could you know bend elbows with, have a beer with, just a good conversation. There's nothing pretensive, you know, uh, about him. You know, he just uh, he, he just seems warm and right there. Definitely seems really normal. I'm you know I want to. No, a whole lot more. You know, I mean, he's talking about the two right together. So he's talking about selling futons and chasing girls and just being really, really normal. And then he's talking about understanding. You can understand all of math once you see the geometry. Like, yeah, okay, well, I'd well, like the piece of that. you're his best friend and you, you helped him get through <laughs> high school. Now he's, right. we got, I think we've got Jason back. We got you back, right. Jason? Yes, all I'm right. back. <laughs> So I, I I don't know if you burned out the phone line there. Just I think I might have. I might have been talking for 45 seconds without knowing I was disconnected. <laughs> so pick it back up where you were. Okay, so you where, were, where you were having a conversation here? with Larry, and, and he was saying, Jason, I just don't, you know, I mean, you're not the same guy. What happened to you? Pick it up from there. Yeah, So and, and he was just stunned, and he kept saying, you know, I just cannot believe this is you. And, uh, and. I, I just couldn't stop talking about it because it was like he was my best friend from childhood, or one of my best friends for sure. And uh, and I just wanted to unload all this that I all that I had learned because it's so exciting for me because there are so many things that we all can understand. And uh, so anyway, that, the whole conversation went like that. I just and by, even when we were done, I think he was just absolutely stunned. He didn't know what to think because um, yeah. it also it occurred before I had been diagnosed and, and, and had met Dr. Treffert and all the other things that happened, too. So I still didn't really know uh, exactly, didn't have a diagnosis. So you've talked to him, though, since, and he does yeah. know what the diagnosis is. So he knows that his friend that he helped graduate from high school is a genius now. Right, right. Now everybody in Alaska knows it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really cool. Now, you you did get married, though. You did settle down. You do have a family, right? Yes, uh, we're having a daughter. Her due date is in 25 days. I'm counting the days. And what's amazing is that if this wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't. What happened is that I was attacked and had a brain injury. Um, it really changed life. I wound up having post-traumatic stress so badly that I didn't leave my house for like three years. And because of the way things changed visually, um, when I see things, they have it, everything has this jitteriness to it. And uh, it's a long story, but that jitteriness, actually seeing things in like, like a slightly discrete form, really gives you this advantage in math. And so for this three years I was in my house, all I was doing was just studying and drawing. And then uh, eventually a physicist saw my drawings and got me into school. And so I went back to school to start learning how to you know, do traditional math equations to prove what I was drawing is what it was. And that was when I met my wife. So if I hadn't had this what I thought at first was this horrible mugging occur, you know, none of this would have happened. I wouldn't be having my daughter. I wouldn't be married. I wouldn't have gone back to school. So in the long run, it turned out to be this wonderful thing, even with some of the down, you know, some of the bad things that have come with it. You know, I get muscle tremors and have some other physical problems, but they're, you know, compared to what most people wind up with, it's nothing. You know, I want to get into all of that in much greater detail, but but for the moment then, okay, let's let's go through this i mean when i did the research for the show i saw some articles that suggested that because of your story it may encourage 
you know, people to go bang their heads on the wall or to obtain concussions, you know. Has right. anybody, anybody said anything to you about that? No, there's only this one guy that wrote a, a story about that, and, and the comments, you know, most of the comments below, and I would have to agree with, like, I just can't imagine, so far out of all, you know, there's been hundreds of millions of people that have seen the story, and, and nobody's done it. So yeah, if somebody actually does it, then it's probably like evolution. You know, <laughs> if you're doing it on purpose, be, yeah. The odds yeah. would be greatly against that. I mean, there are somewhat 30 seven acquired seven cases that we know of and in the world. And you put it towards 7 billion, close to 7 billion people on the planet. You know, the odds, might as well play Russian roulette, you know, for a week versus, you know, or for many weeks, for several years. You know, yeah, well, enter all the lotteries in, you know, that have, have, have happened since time, and you're still, you have better right. odds. And, yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> here you are now. Let's, let's jump back if we can, and let's, let's go through this process. You were attacked. You lost consciousness. Um, you come to in a hospital, and you're just you, right? Um, well, actually, that night I noticed a difference, but I thought it was the pain medicine. So I'm not sure that first day is is really a blur because of the head injury. Take us and through the that. Tell us, tell us what it was like and and how you handled it. Because as I read your book, and we can't read your book, we don't have enough time on the air. But I would encourage everybody to do it. But as I read your book, it it wasn't a sudden event. This was something that took took time for you to understand took time oh, yeah. for you to integrate this so flesh that out for us what was that like okay it's like uh, seeing things because everything was changed visually um I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it it makes everything look like it's attached to a grid structure and actually technically it is when you draw it out when you see things discreetly like little picture frames mm-hmm. uh it, and, you, and you're aware of the frames, if you actually plot out the points of the frames, it makes this grid structure. And that's how ma- what math is based on, what calculus is. And so what I started noticing is, is because my vision had been changed and the way things moved had this jitteriness to it, I started overlaying like a grid, like a piece of graph paper mentally on top of everything that I was looking at. And I found that as long as I made the grid sufficiently small, all the motions of everything across my field of vision would line up with a point on the grid. And I realized that no matter how, matter how small the thing that I'm trying to look at is, as long as I make the grid microscopic, you know, you could literally define it. Well, it turns out, I learned out later on, that that's what calculus is. Calculus is just slicing everything up, the universe geometry, into these tinier and tinier grids. And the tinier the grids get, the more accurate the measurement gets. So just seeing that way is literally like forcing you to see in calculus. And by me overlaying that grid, I didn't know it at the time, but I was doing what calculus does. And so it really gives you this advantage that nobody else, the other kids like in school didn't have because they were just looking at these numbers as numbers. And it's not, and when, when really every equation is always describing geometry because the universe is geometry and, uh, geometry is actually what the real equation is for like for instance every equation that exists you can graph it into a shape and so say the equation x squared f of the x equals x squared if you graph it it makes this little parabola opening upwards but like when i talk to professors i ask them what's real x squared or that parabolic shape you know that you're looking at and it's the Mm -hmm. parabola that's real so the best way to think of it is like 
think of the universe by being pure geometry. It, that is the equations in their natural form. And we just use X and Ys and this grid to describe the motion across, you know, space-time. But really, it's the geometry is what is real. Okay. Now, you weren't trained as a mathematician, though. So... No, all I had was pre-algebra at the time, so I, I had no way to describe it except for to draw it. And so, you know, you, you're suffering depression, uh, yeah. and you closed yourself away. And I would assume you've isolated from friends and family as much as you can as well. That typically accompanies depression. Yeah. And you're just spending hours and hours drawing what you're seeing. I mean, is is that? You, we've got a break coming up. When I when we come back, I want an answer to that one, Jason. Okay. Is, is that what you were doing? Just kind of in your cave, drawing what you were seeing. At uh, first, yes. All right. When you when we come back, we'll flesh that out. We're speaking with Mr. Jason Padgett about his incredible story and the wonderful book, Struck by Genius. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up after a few words from some of our friends. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Praise for Eldon Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions, continues to mount. John Edwards said this about choices. Read this book. We are living at a time when people are searching for answers to fundamental questions in their lives. This book can be, if applied, a roadmap to personal enlightenment and empowerment. More important, it helps you see that you can manifest change. Joan Borisenko had this to say. Choices and Illusions is a smart, practical book by a grand master of the mind. If you want to get out of the box of your own thinking and touch a greater reality, Eldon Taylor can show you how. Lindsay Wagner had this to say, Enjoy the journey. I did. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Whether you catch our show on CTR or 12radio.com, or bto.net and or bbs.com. We want you to know that we appreciate you. Thank you for listening. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Jason Pageant about his incredible story and wonderful book, Struck by Genius. We ask our guests for their life songs, if you will. Uh, this often provides some interesting insight into our guests. Now we just plays Close My Eyes Forever by Ozzy Osbourne and Lita Ford. Why is this song important to you, Jason, and how does it tell us about who you are? Boy, that it has so many different ways that I interpret that song. It applies to so much uh, to to change, to not trusting the world at certain points. Right after the attack happened, and I had post traumatic stress and didn't trust going anywhere. To wiping cobwebs from my eyes to see what I couldn't see before. Um, that that for me, that song is is just very meaningful. <laughs> and about the change of life and and this this. Uh, beauty that can come from this sad time that I went through. All right. Well, before we went to the break, 
you were telling us about, you know, you're in your man cave. or I mean, who were you living with? Were you living on your own? Do you have your own apartment? Or were you living with your parents? Or uh, No, I had a house doing... that we, our, we own. Our family owns it. just free and clear, luckily. So even though all this was happening, I, it was a really run-down place, though. I mean, like, the roof was caving in. But uh, the inside wasn't bad, but it looked really bad from the outside. And so I lived there and just so, hold okay. up. It, it was in the scariest neighborhood, and the house looked so scary that even the scary people stayed away from it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so this is this is where you held up for three years. Yes, and and you did your drawing. Now, was, were you doing the drawing freehand? I mean, were you using protractors and compasses and the like, or how were you? I mean, tell us how this evolved. Yeah, I started doing it freehand, and. Uh, and like I was trying to draw the number pi and explain it in in, in a language that I could somehow explain to everybody. And uh, in fact, I remember this one big. Well, back up just a second, because in your book you tell us what how that whole process started before you even figured out it was the number pi. So so For, take us take us to there. Well, basically everything I kept on saying everything looks like pieces of pie to me. Like the way when sun like hits a car moving and there's that little burst coming off, that is like pie at a certain value. No matter what it is, uh, I see it as a circle divided into a certain number of triangles, and and that can then describe the slopes of what we're trying to des- the geometry of what we're trying to describe. And so at first, all I could really say was, "Oh, that looks like pieces of pie," or or, and, and then try to draw it on a piece of paper. And then I mean, there was one big moment, uh, like with my daughter in the house, and I was talking to her, uh, and she asked me how the TV worked. And I said, little you know, rectangle pixels change color, and as they change color, that changes the shape on the screen. And she goes, and right as I said that, a commercial for overstock.com came on with a big circle. And uh-huh. she goes, that's impossible. How do you make a circle with rectangles? And it was like, instantly, that was the moment that it was just like, completely clear that you can't circles don't exist and you can keep making those pixels half their size and half that size and half that size and the resolution continues to get better as you make them half that size to infinity but you can keep going to infinity forever and you never fully fill in the circle so pi was describing this grid structure that's trying to fill in a perfect curve but never can and that's why pi's digits never end and never repeat themselves because each time you add a new little cube, you're changing the area and the circumference. And now, uh, just sh- switching you a little bit from mathematics to maybe metaphysics, does does that suggest anything to you about the circle? Oh, it's it, it defines everything. Pi the, pi literally allows us to define slope, which is what everything is. It's just geometry, angles, and derivatives. I mean, everything is slope, and uh, so so it does it it. it it eventually leads to fantastic things about like understanding life and and the universe like there's a way a, a drawing that i have and a way just to explain it without even looking at the drawing it takes less than two minutes um, and you can describe relativity to everyone and they all get it and they all believe it because it's really how it works it's just it hasn't been explained exactly the right way. It's like it's been done partially right, but but then they leave the last few questions off, which is the whole key to really understanding the concept and saying it in a way that everybody understands. Can you explain it to us without a drawing on the air? Yes. 
Do so, please. Okay. So a lot of people have heard of this first part of this thing called the Doppler effect, which is how waves are, are, are observed uh, and, and how they stretch and compress based on motion. So a lot of us have heard like a car drive by or a motorcycle drive by real fast and it goes and it changes pitch. Well, the reason why it changes pitch is because short wavelengths, waves that are really close together, we hear that as a high pitch and long wavelengths that are longer. Uh, we hear that as a low pitch. So as the motorcycle is coming towards you, that wave of sound is moving towards you. But since it's moving towards you, it squishes together, which makes shorter wavelengths. You hear the pitch get higher, then it goes by you, and now it's moving away from you, and the wavelengths stretch out, and the pitch gets lower. So that's the first part. But then you say, now we're going to add relativity to it. And say you and I are on the corner of a block, and you're on the other corner. And my friend is driving his motorcycle away from me, but he's moving towards you because he's in between us. Well, relative to my position, I hear the pitch getting lower, but you're looking at the motorcycle from a different perspective, and he's moving towards you, so you hear the pitch getting higher. He's traveling with the wave, so there's no Doppler effect, and he hears a medium pitch. And then what you do is you stop right there and say, what sound is the motorcycle making? A low pitch to me, a medium pitch to the person on the motorcycle, or a high pitch to you? And it's actually making all three sounds at the same time relative to who's looking at it. And then you say, which reality is the real one? All three are real, but relative. And then the very last step is saying, now imagine we have an infinite number of people all observing that motorcycle, and every person is moving at a different speed from zero to the speed of light. Every one of them hears a different sound, and every reality is real and valid, but relative. And, and, and so literally, if that car, that, that motorcycle is making a wave that can be any sound based on the position and velocity of the observer and the observed. And that, and that Doppler effect applies to everything. Time, color, what you hear, taste, everything has this Doppler effect. So you can change anything to make it look different, sound different, taste different, and, and it, to that observer that is reality and so anyway go ahead that's basically the, the general no, I love it I, lo- I love it right, what, what do you do I, I mean I have to ask right now I mean are you teaching what, what are you doing right now well I've been doing a lot with like a, there's looks like there's going to be a movie I can't it looks like it <laughs> we won't know for sure for about seven days a week or maybe two weeks but uh, and I've been doing the book I'm studying on the side and now I'm starting like to do these uh, lectures so, like, I'll be talking at, at the TED conference in Vancouver and some other conferences around the United States. Um, I'd really love to get just a few things into the curriculum, like like understanding pi, because you can teach, and pi is the root of math, but there's a simple way with drawings, with three drawings, that you can teach it to anybody. They can multiply, they can completely understand the root of math with a picture, whereas if you try to teach it to them in traditional math, they have to have at least calculus to and a good understanding of it to 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 be able to describe it whereas you can do it with pictures and everybody gets it and if you do now, it with a go ahead with it with is this true of both applied and theoretical math jason with pi yeah oh yeah it, it applies to everything yes definitely pi defines angles uh and so like whenever they're saying you know the sine of pi divided by 2, they're literally saying this angle, pi 180 divided by 2, gives you this new number and then the sine of that. So uh, pi is, is integral to all of math, literally. And, and in fact, when you teach people how pi works geometrically, you're actually teaching them integral calculus, which is how the area under a curve fills in forever, but never fully fills in. 
you're also teaching them differential calculus is how angles change like a secant approaches the tangent line that's the edge of the circle and then you're teaching them this thing called the yardstick problem which is this problem in fractals but you're doing it to fifth graders and they don't even know that they're learning these concepts and then they'll hit calculus and say oh i saw this at pi and completely you learn so much more because you're not struggling to understand the concept at the same time as memorize what the equations mean because equations are always just standing for this piece of geometry and this moving here or how high this is you know so when you understand that part of it better it really helps you to to get through the classes quicker and easier and learn more You've done some incredible drawings, and you have a website that where all these drawings are. Well, not all of them, but where many drawings are. I missed it if it's there. You know, inform us all what you just went through. Um, three drawings. Three Is drawings. Is that on the internet somewhere where we can go look at it and see it? Yes, uh, there's. A, it's called Fine Art America. Um, I have a whole bunch of drawings on there, but this is the ones that look like circles. There's a circle. Well, they're actually perfect circles don't exist. Remember the like the, the pixels on the television screen getting smaller right. to infinity. You, you get close to a circle. But anyway, I've got a circle drawn with 180 sides, one drawn with 360 sides, and one drawn with 720 sides. And when you look at those pictures, it's real easy to see how you're approaching a circle forever. And there's, but there's, so you can also look at it. And then next to it, there's a description in layman terms, and there's the description, like in trigonometric terms, so that people can actually do the equation if they want to prove it, you know, or have proof. And that's, that's one thing that's so nice about this is it's provable. Pi is like one of the things that's rock solid, you know. <laughs> when we get into right. all the other stuff, some of that's theoretical, but pi is just right. rock solid. You know, you can put it into your calculator, and it'll plug out the answer. Give your website again so everybody can double-check that. They can it's called go there. Fine Art America, and then just look up my name, Jason Paget, Or if you just Google my name, Jason Paget. You it get it, Fine up. Art America. Yeah. It's, it's Really, it's a great site. Okay, now, now Jason, um, it would seem to me, based on your writings uh, and other material, that you're kind of a, a spiritual dude. You know, yes, you believe I actually in God. love the that's I love that about math. It has allowed me to analyze this. Like another thing about that song that you played is we all wonder what happens when we die, you know. And and this has given me ways to analyze space, time, and what time is, and how how to try to help explain some of these things, you know. And it, for me, it helps alleviate fear of death, just like any religion does. For for a lot of people, you know, that it, it does that. Um, this is almost is like spiritual to me you know because it it really does a so, lot to help you understand the universe i mean many mathematicians have said that mathematics is the language of god uh and, and is is that what you're saying to me you believe that you've acquired i mean i can't believe it i, I can't I, I i'm pretty i would i would say like 99.9 with a billion you know google nines after it <laughs> okay. that, that it is you know, but to, to say anything with 100% certainty when I really get into the math of it, then I'd have to say I, I have a little bit of faith in it. Like somebody who says they're an absolute atheist has to have a little bit of faith that there's nothing because they can't prove it. Just like somebody who says they absolutely have faith in their religion still has or absolutely believe that it's real still have to have faith. So, but yeah, I do think, I think geometry is everything. And you need, it's the one thing you need nothing to have. It just is. Empty space is nothing. And that was one of the problems I had. Like when I was a kid, I would think about, you know, well, if 
this world was created by this being, then who created that being, and who created that being, and who created that being, and you go on forever. And eventually you realize you need to have some sort of uncaused cause, something that just is. And the only thing that just is, is geometry. You need nothing to have it, and everything that exists is geometry. I always tell, like when I talk to professors about it, I say, try to think of something that does not have geometry. Even thought is brain waves leaving our head, you know. So, and, and so far, nobody's been able to come up with anything that's not geometry, that, that has been observed. So Aristotle's uh, prime mover, the unmoved mover, is geometry. Everything is geometry, yes. Okay, I like that. I like that. Now, okay, so here we are. Uh, you say a physicist saw your drawings. So yes. you're, you've locked yourself away. You're doing these drawings. You've done them for three years. How does a physicist just stumble onto your drawings? I started getting out a little bit, and I went to Subway Sandwich at the mall. It's Coma Mall. And I was okay. drawing. I was sitting there drawing because I, because I, I, I was at the same time I was just starving for human interaction. So I, and to tell you the truth, I was drawing on purpose because I, I wanted somebody to talk to me about it. And other people talked to me about it as they saw me drawing it. And, and eventually, this one guy stopped, and he was a physicist, and he said, you know, uh, what is this based on? What classes do you have? And you know, we started going. I started telling him everything I thought about the, the you know, the universe and, and pi. And he says, well, this is amazing. He goes, but you're using just layman terms. He goes, I can't believe you don't have any structured, formal training. He's like, if you did that, you could, you know, prove this, and, and you could send it to a college and have them, you know, listen and have, you know, people pay attention to it. And so he convinced me to go enroll, because I, all I had was pre-algebra at the time. And uh, so I went and enrolled in Algebra 99 at TCC, and the very first day, they, I didn't even know at the time that you could graph an equation, and that's what I learned that first day is how to graph a line. I was like, wait a second, you're telling me that all these things can be graphed? And she says, yes. And I'm like, then we're talking about the same thing, just two different ways. You're using this beautiful language of equations that can prove things, and I'm using what we naturally use, which is our eyes and our ears, you know, and, and just the geometry of and and but really it's the same thing you know so in now, fact what, i think artists are just are good at natural math okay uh, so what was it like for this this teacher i mean you know yeah. that that had to be really difficult i mean how how tough was that class for you jason um you know it was really easy i started off and like she i was a week late and she gave me this test and all it was was about slope and how to define it with like you know y equals mx plus b and you know real basic stuff and she's like if you can do this you know this quiz i'll let you into the class even though it's late and i struggled because i didn't know what any of the things meant and finally managed to get it done and turned it into her you know on monday and she said okay looks good and let me in and then i started showing her all my drawings and, and trying to describe stuff and she's like wow your thinking is way ahead of what we're talking about here, but, you know, you can't prove that stuff. Like, I was showing her drawings of pi and saying, this is pi, and she was like, well, how can you prove that? And I was like, I, I don't know, you know, how to prove it. But then once I hit trig, then, of course, I was able to write the equation, you know, to prove it. Yeah. So how much but, math How much math did you take to get to where um, you I, I went to, like, calculus 3, and now I'm heading into linear algebra. So when it comes to, like, a physicist, you know, I'm, like, only mid-range. When it comes to to, to to traditional mathematics, you know, but you can jump to the end of so many things if you're just aware of some of these constants, uh, and you really look at the, the geometry of it. You can really get some fantastic results uh, and, and skip a lot of heartache. 
Now, somewhere I read that you're you're also consulting with the government on some research. Is that true? Um, I've been called about it. Um, I haven't gotten in, into into depth with any of it. No, you know, it just it just more has to do with uh, it's stuff that I really can't. I can't. I'm not allowed to talk about. Okay. All right. What's your ambition today, Jason? Where do you um, want to be ten years from now? I, I want to have kids entering math at a higher rate. I, I want to get them excited about it. I want to get, to be able to teach this because when you sit down and you do it properly with pictures, I mean, the, for the number of people, just percentage-wise, that like it is really high, whereas, you know, most people hate math, but when we talk about it this way and we use these drawings, people that come in, like, people would come into the futon store that I worked at, and I had the pictures all over the walls, and they would say, oh, God, don't start talking about math as soon as I start. And then 20 minutes later, they're completely engrossed because they now understand pi and relativity, and you can see just the astonishment and the wonder that they're having because they're realizing, oh, my goodness, you know, my, my, my horizons and my view of the universe was just expanded greatly and in a simple way, and, and there's a lot of ways to apply it. And just by creating that interest, they start to, to learn more on their own. And, and I know we can instill this into kids when they're younger, you know, and, and exposing them to these things properly so that when they hit the traditional math classes, they understand what it's more all about instead of just memorizing the equations and they don't understand what it all means and then just forgetting it when they're out of the class. Well, we definitely need that. We look into the world and we can see that we're lagging in those areas. And uh, those areas are the most important in the future. Everything is math and science now. Yeah, it, it definitely. Your uh, book, Struck by Genius, I have to tell you, I really enjoyed reading it. It's a great Thank book. You. It's a great read. Tell everybody how they can get a copy of the book. Uh, Struck by Genius is available in, in uh, most big bookstores. You can order it online. There's audio books. Uh, we have the download on Nook. Uh, pretty much at all major bookstores. Amazon.com is a good place, too, and even on my own website, struckbygenius.com. And, and again, I, I really recommend this book. It's, it's more than what you've just listened to. And, and I'll tell you what, Jason, when you write that first math textbook, I want a copy. Okay? Great. I, I can't right, wait sir. to do it. <laughs> All right. We appreciate right. you being with us today. It's uh, great to talk to you. You're, you're a genuine uh, hero of a lot of folks. And, uh, and I love just how warm and, and natural you have a great advantage and a great gift, and I hope you do fulfill your dreams. Thank you for being with us, sir. Thank you very much. If you would like to know more about Jason Pageant and his work, uh, do visit his website, struckbygenius.com. Uh, you know, we have a film about Jason, and, and it's a great film. It features some of his artwork and, and, uh, and, and how he communicates using this artwork. So it's in our chat room. You can watch it uh, during the break. So if you're not already there, now's the time to join us. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back after a few messages from, well, after we pay a couple of bills. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. I believe for every drop of rain that falls, 
a flower grows I believe that somewhere in the darkest night a candle glows I believe for everyone who goes astray someone will come to show the way Yes, I believe I believe Above the storm The smallest prayer Will still be heard I believe that someone In the great somewhere Hears every word Every time Touch a leaf or see the sky, then I know why I believe. Welcome back. If you just joined us in this hour, we will be discussing our beliefs, what we believe, particularly those we attach to morality and religion. We will be speaking with Professor Franz DeWall about his research and book, The Bonobo and the Atheist. Dr. Franz B.M. DeWall is a Dutch-American biologist and primatologist known for his work on the behavior and social intelligence of primates. His first book, Chimpanzee politics compared the schmoozing and scheming of chimpanzees involved in power struggles with that of human politicians. Ever since, Professor DeWall has drawn parallels between primate and human behavior from peacemaking and morality to culture. His scientific work has been published in hundreds of technical articles in journals such as Science, Nature, Scientific America, and outlets specialized in animal behavior. His popular books, translated into 20 languages, have made him one of the world's most visible primatologists. His latest books are Our Inner Ape, The Age of Empathy, and The Bone Abodes and the Atheists. And I, you know, I'm going to have to see if that's how Professor DeWall pronounces that, because I think he says it bonobos, but we'll ask about we'll ask him about that when we're getting in here. Professor DeWall is C.H. Uh, Candler Professor in the Psychology Department at Emory University and Director of the Living Link Center at Yerkes National Primate Research Center in Atlanta, Georgia. He's been elected to the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the Royal Dutch Academy of Sciences in 2007. He was selected by Time as one of the world's 100 most influential people today and in 2011 by Discover as among 47 all-time great minds of science. 
I just watched his uh, TED Talk. Uh, I'd encourage you all to go take a look at that. When the show ends, uh, you can see why this man deserves those accolades. So let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Franz DeWall. Yeah, I'm happy to be there. Well, good, sir. You know, we like to get three things uh, out of our guests, and, and that's basically who are they, what is their message, and how do we use it. So if we may, please begin by telling our audience a little bit about yourself, you know, where you grew up, when you first became interested in the world of primates, power struggles, and morality. Well, I grew up in the Netherlands and um, studied biology. And initially, I worked mostly with birds and monkeys. And it's only later that um, that I started working with chimpanzees. And from there, I at some point, I moved to the U.S. That was in, in the early 80s. And started working with bonobos and chimpanzees and monkeys again. And uh, now I am in Atlanta, Georgia, at Emory University. I'm teaching uh, psychology. And I'm doing research at the Yerkes Primate Center. Uh, Yerkes Primate Center has its own apes, so I, I work with these apes who live basically in, in outdoor areas, but we uh, we ask them to come into a room where we can test them on cognitive tasks, and that's how we do our work. Okay, were you, and I have to ask this, because as we flesh out the story as we go along, uh, we're going to be talking about some issues that have to do with religion. So were you raised religious, Professor? I was raised in a Catholic environment. Uh, the Netherlands is divided in Protestants in the north and Catholics in the south. And because the south was occupied by the Spanish, was a colony of the Spanish, and, the, and Spain had an inquisition. And if you were not Catholic, uh, you, you could just as well forget about your life. And so the, the south is Catholic. And um, I, I left my religion at a very young age uh, when I became a student. Uh, but I'm still very interested in religion, and the book, uh, The Bonobo and the Atheist, uh, is, uh, is partly about the role of religion in morality. I think religion cannot claim morality for itself, like it's not the inventor of morality. I think mor human morality is much older than religion. But I'm interested in the role that, that religion plays, and I don't see it as entirely negative as some, some atheists do. And so I'm sort of in debate in that book about what the positive roles of religion may be. Okay, well, now, moral arguments, you know, largely arise uh, as a result of religious beliefs. I, I mean, I'm a, I know that you're aware of that. Um, you know, God's existence forms a diverse family of arguments that reason from some feature of morality or the moral life to the existence of God. And we usually understand that as morally good creator of the universe and morally good character that may may redeem us. And there's a lot of you know, a lot of popularity in this work, like C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. So uh, do you think that your premise challenges that um, directly? or do you? And, and how has it been received by, you know, not just the academic community, but the public at large? Yeah, so my, my um, position is quite different, as I don't believe religion is at the is at the source of morality. I think human morality right. is much older than the current religions. The current religions are just a couple of thousand years old, and I cannot imagine that 100,000 years or 200,000 years ago our ancestors did not have some sort of 
rule structure in their society where you had acceptable and unacceptable behavior. I'm sure we have always had that, and, and I can see many signs of that in the primate studies that I do. So, so many of the primates, they, they show empathy and sympathy. They have a sense of fairness. And, and so we, we follow that and, and test them on that. And so my belief is that morality is much older than religion, but that religion may have um, played a role in justifying morality and explaining it to people and enforcing it. So uh, religion may have played a constructive role, but came in secondarily. So it was not the source of it. Okay, now, you know, probably, I I think, one of the most influential versions of a moral argument for belief in God, and I don't mean to focus on this, I just want to get it out of the way, can be traced to Kant, who famously argued that the theoretical arguments for God's existence were unsuccessful, but presented a rational argument for belief in God as a postulate of practical reason. He held that a you know, rational moral being must necessarily will the highest good, which you know consists of a world in which people are both morally good and happy. And so the Creator created us in such a way that... <clears throat> All of life would, what, uh, would will this highest good. You know, it's the equivalent to belief in God or moral being who is ultimately responsible for the character of the natural world, including, of course, the bonobo. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah, you now, look- the Kant, of course, is, um, the current science on morality is, is not really in line with Kant so much. Kant emphasized rationality, reasoning, and logic. And so basically morality is something that we arrive at by reasoning about the world around us and how we think the world should be. Um, but if you test people on, um, in brain scanners, for example, on moral dilemmas, um, it activates very old parts of the brain, much older than our prefrontal cortex, where all our thinking happens, and it activates areas that are highly emotional. And so people are, um, the scientists at least, are believing that uh, there's an enormous emotional component to morality, and that's also why we get so so uh, extremely um, excited when we discuss moral issues. And so there's an enormous em- uh, emotional component, and that's also the component that I often see in the primates that I study. And so Kant is not particularly supported by the current science and, and may have had it backwards, is that we reason about things that we already morally uh, or emotionally decided on. And in, in the primate study, study, I'm very interested in things like empathy and compassion, for example, uh, which I think is, is one of the bases of human morality. I, I don't think you would be able to have the morality that we have if you were not interested in others and, and did not care about others. And so uh, that's the sort of things that we, that we study in our primates. And, for example, one of the typical things that we study as an expression of empathy is how they react to someone who's distressed. In humans, of course, we test that in children. So in, you ask a family member to cry, and then we see how young children respond to them, and, and they approach them, and they touch them, and stroke them, and we call that acts of empathy. And in the primates uh, that I study, I see exactly the same. Uh, we did recently a bonobo study in, in the Congo, uh, and the bonobos react exactly like that to someone who's distressed. They go over, they embrace them, they kiss them, and so um, they have the same expressions of empathy that we have. And empathy is a, an absolutely critical component of human morality. Yeah, I, I, I suppose I would... Empathy, you know. empathy is not exactly what 
Kant was not big, a big fan of empathy. Kant did not really no. say much about the beauty of emotions or the beauty of compassion. And actually, compassion, he said, looks good, but it was not really um, uh, what morality was about. For him, morality is about duty. And so Kant, I think, was on the wrong track with that, uh, with his emphasis on rationality and, and how that's the core of uh, morality. Well pointed out. Now, do you think that uh, the difference between um, the kind of animal morality that we're going to flesh out before this show is over and the human uh, morality that we talk about is rational or is it emotional? I mean, religion marches everything up as a rational reason for why we are moral. Is morality in the human condition uh, a matter of rationality, or is it a matter of emotion? I'm not sure that religion is so much emphasizing rationality, as you say, because uh, it isn't the core of morality, according to the Christian religion, is love. According to the Buddhist, it's compassion. Those things are not exactly rational arguments. And so I think religions also emphasize the, the emotional side of morality. Now, I think rationality does play a role in the sense that we try to extract from the, 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 the social relations that we have, we extract some sort of moral code that we need to justify. And, and as soon as you're going to justify things or as soon as you're going to try to reach a consensus where you say, do we agree on these particular rules? At that point, language and rationality come in. And, and that's a big difference with, with the primates that I study, because I don't think they're in the business of justifying the, the, the social systems that they have. And so that's where humans are different, is where we're going to have debates about what is the right thing to do under these circumstances, and that sort of debates I don't see in my primates. So, so I think the primates are born with a number of psychological tendencies that we use in our moral systems, but there's, there's something not there, which is the, the rationalization of all of that. Okay, well, that goes to the heart of my question, because, you know, we, we look into the world today, the real world as human beings, and uh, we, we see a great deal of tragedy. Uh, we, you know, young girls' nose and ears are cut off by... Uh, a, a husband, a 14-year-old child who's sold to a man and she disappoints him and so he brutalizes her in that way and we think that that is completely wrong in our Western world and and we, we look at that and we say, you know, how can cultural relativity really establish ever a sense of world peace when we when we are that different in our value systems and so we attempt to come up with a value system that the world can agree upon and that that's the area of rationality but it that rationality as you're pointing out or as i think you're suggesting is built upon our emotional response uh empathic response in, in, say, our Western world, our abhorrence of what we see happening to, to young women maybe in Pakistan. Is that, mm -hmm. Did I get that right? Yeah, I don't think biology uh, um, specifies your moral system. So, so um, we test, for example, our primates on, on a sense of fairness, which, which I think they have, and, and we, the way we test them, is uh, how they react to inequalities, where you give one of them a very good reward and one of them a very lousy reward for the same task, and they protest against that, at least the one who, who gets the lousy reward does. 
Yes. And so, so I think they have the a grape, sense of yeah. fairness. But how you then translate that kind of reactions into your social system and how much emphasis you put on fairness or unfairness in your social system, I think that's up to humans. And that's why humans vary from age to age and from country to country. So, for example, in in this country, um, we have now uh, changes in, in how, uh, for example, homosexuals are going to be treated. We have uh, changes in how the death penalty is going to be viewed. And, and so uh, there's, a, there's an evolution of morality in the society, which is a cultural revolution, of course. And, uh, and so we change the rules, and, and the rules are different from country to country, which already indicates that human morality is not... Um, in its details, the product of biology. It's a product of culture and religion in that sense. But the basis of w what you start with are tendencies that you inherited from other primates, and which are sort of, sort of mammalian tendencies of caring for others and, and having a hierarchy and following rules and so on. Do, do you find this difference uh, among primates? I mean, if you, you know, the primates at Yerkes, do they have a different uh, fairness system than than primates somewhere else? Well, there's quite a few studies on what we call cultural differences in the primates, and so uh -huh. it, it's quite common to see one group of primates of the same species act quite differently than another group, and you may have groups, for example, have much higher tolerance levels than others or are much friendlier or unfriendlier to each other. So we see that kind of variation. I'm not sure I would call it that they have a different moral system, but we see variation between groups and, and they are passed on. And, and so if you live in one group and you grow up in one group, you're going to learn different behavior than in another. But it would be, it is or it isn't, I suppose, that should, that's how I want to say this. It is or it isn't fair to say among the primates there is a cultural relativity to the value system, their morality, just as there is within humans, fair or unfair. Yeah, I'm not sure it would be your value system. <laughs> that, that's a big word, but, but let me give you an example. Please. Um, we, uh, long ago, we worked with um, juvenile monkeys, uh, of two different species, and one species is is very hierarchical and aggressive and violent, and it has a very strict hierarchy. And as soon as you disobey the hierarchy, you're going to get punished in their society. The other species of uh, monkey, uh, closely related but much friendlier, and much more uh, relaxed, much more tolerant, very little violence. Uh, when they had a fight, they would reconcile very easily afterwards, whereas the other ones didn't. And so what we did in that experiment is we took the juveniles of both species and housed them together and let them grow up together. And they lived together for five months, and then we separated them again. And what happened is that um, the monkeys who were from the very nasty, aggressive type, they learned um, that tolerance was possible and that being friendly with each other was possible. Uh, and so they learned from the other ones, and, and even when we separated them, and so now they were living only with their own species, not with the other species, uh, they had become much friendlier and they reconciled much more easily after fights, and they were much more tolerant. And so we were able to change their behavior by social experience with the other species, which shows that they have great flexibility, so it shows not everything that monkeys do is, is just instinctual and is, is determined by genes, but a lot of it is determined also by social experience, just as it is in humans. 
There's a lot of popular writers today, Professor, that argue that, um, you know, the world shares a bond, uh, a bond of cooperativeness. And I know you you have stated you think uh, that the way human beings have often been looked at as being inherently evil is um, or in having an inherently evil side is is an unfair way to look at them. But on the other hand, uh, there is this avarice nature uh, to animals. I mean, I've, I've seen a stallion kill a foal just to get to a mare in heat. Uh, chickens will gang up and kill a chicken uh, that's been a member of the, you know, the community. Um, there's a lot of competitiveness. I guess that's what I'm saying in the world. And, and then there's also a lot of cooperation in your research, in your work. Do we tend to be more cooperative or more competitive, or is that also a cultural thing, like what you just described with these two uh, communities of primates, monkeys? Yeah, so um, in biology we have a history of emphasizing the competition. So the struggle for life, you know, and and, uh, the, the, the winners are the ones who defeat the losers and so on. But an enormous amount of evolution takes place not by winning and losing. An enormous amount takes place by, if I just have better ears or eyes than you do, or I have a better immune system, or I'm better capable of finding food than you are, um, that also produces evolution. So so it's all any difference in success, so to speak, that occurs, and some of that may be due to competition, but competition is not the main factor in evolution. And so this whole em- emphasis that we got, in the, especially in the 80s, 1980s and 90s, that, that we are completely selfish and we're completely competitive and the winners take all, basically, in, in evolution, that whole emphasis has now disappeared. And I've always emphasized that other animals, just like humans, we, they have all the tendencies. They have, yes, they are, can, can be very competitive, they can be very aggressive and nasty, but they also have an enormous amount of cooperation, they reconcile after fights. They um, they help each other, um, and 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 genuine altruism is possible in in animals just as it is in humans. And so we they have that entire spectrum of behavior that we also have from from nice to nasty, so to speak. Uh, and 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 depicting nature as purely a place of competition is an enormous simplification that I don't agree with. Okay, you mentioned altruism. You know, I'd like to flesh that out some. Uh, there's a lot of controversy with regard to human altruism. Philosophers are, you know, always, I mean, they've discussed this for a long time. I know you know about that. I mean, as soon as an individual realizes that they get something out of it, is it, is it altruistic? The brain is wired in such a way that if, if you write a check to your favorite charity, um, you know, those good feeling neurochemicals, uh, the endorphins are going to bathe your system. So mm-hmm. the reward centers in the brain, you know, is it possible to really have an altruistic uh, response? I guess that's one question. How is it you define altruism and where do you see it in animals, sir? Yeah, the, the fact that we get rewards out of doing good. And, and feel good by doing good is very interesting, and that's and that's a very important mechanism uh, to produce altruistic behavior because 
empathy is, is what is often involved in that. So you feel sorry for someone or you you feel that you need to help someone and, and then when you do it, you feel good about it. Well, if, if that's... In your I'm opinion. sorry. I, I'm going to ask you to hold it right there. We have yeah. a we have a hard break, and I don't want you, you, your answer interrupted. So uh, we hope you're enjoying our show today. We're speaking with Professor Franz De Waal about his research and book, The Bonobos and the Atheists. It's a really truly great book. You're going to want to read this. To learn more about our guest and his website, simply go to provocativeenlightenment.com. We have links posted for you there to the many places that you can see the professor. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes, so please stay tuned. The changes I've seen in my life are truly a blessing. Intertalk has given me the tools to repair deep-seated beliefs that constantly worked against me. I find myself happier and more successful since I've used the Intertalk programs. I encourage you to discover the power of your beliefs by visiting www.intertalk.com and selecting your title for change. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We just played uh, And When I Die by Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Now, quote, The waves of poetry and music are not changed anywhere without change in the most important laws of the city. Close quote. So wrote Plato in the Republic. Music for Plato was not a neutral amusement. It could express and encourage virtue, nobility, dignity, temperance, chastity. It could also express and encourage vice, sensuality, belligerence, and indiscipline. 
If you just joined us, we're speaking with Professor Franz DeWall about his research and book, The Bonobo and the Atheist, In Search of Humanism Among the Primates. Professor, is there something comparable to the influence of music among non-human animals? Uh, well, um, there's, of course, the birds who make music, and, and actually the melodies of birds have, have been an inspiration to many composers. For example, Mozart composed a symphony based on his uh, pet starling who who whistled a certain tune. So, so uh, And rhythm is being tested on animals nowadays. There's, there's people who do experiments where they test if, if um, chimpanzees or bonobos can follow a rhythm. Um, and and produce a rhythm, a certain rhythm, and 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 they do, which which is not so surprising because, for example, chimpanzees they drum on on hollow trees when they um, try to intimidate others, and 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 so they produce rhythms like that. So yeah, there is there is a limited amount of research on that, but not so much. Interesting. All right, you were before the break. You were fleshing out altruism for us. Please pick it up, and I, and I'm sorry we had to cut you off. Yeah, so altruism in, in the biological sense, we usually define it as, as an act that is costly for you and helps somebody else. Uh, and if you define altruism that way, it's, it's widespread in the animal kingdom. There's many animals who perform acts of altruism, who warn each other for danger or who help each other in need. Um, and then, there's, of course, there's, there's an enormous amount of theories of why that is and like like ants and bees do it, and birds do it, and mammals do it, and primates do it. We we at um, my center we are more interested in the motivations behind it, and and I don't think we can get at that so easily with the insects. But with chimpanzees and bonobos, you can set up experiments where you bring them in a situation where they can help somebody else. And so, for example, with chimpanzees, we have done experiments where where one chimpanzee could produce either food for himself or food for himself plus a partner who sits, sits next to him, and, and then we see what they prefer, and they prefer actually to produce food for the both of them. Uh, with bonobos, people have done experiments where they, they give one bonobo a pile of fruits, and he can eat all the fruits by himself, uh, but he has also learned that there's a door that he can open, and behind the door sits another bonobo, and then they see what they, they do. And, and the bonobos, they usually first open the door, before they even touch the fruit, they open the door, let the other one in, and then they share all that food with the partner who they have uh, invited. So we do that kind of experiments to get at the motivation of altruistic behavior. Um, and, and I think in the same way as with humans, you have quite a bit of altruism. Um, and, and we assume that, as in humans, it makes them feel good to do that kind of things, especially for their friends. Um, but, of course, it is, for us, it's very hard to measure that kind of um, satisfaction. Underlying, I, I think, uh, one of the examples you gave is the possibility that, you know, reciprocity is really what you're dealing with. And I know that you rightly have pointed out that reciprocity and empathy are the pillars of morality. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, you know, I loved your TED Talk, by the way, and I recommend everybody out there uh, take a look at that. But uh, is it truly altruistic if what I'm doing has a quid pro quo in it? Well, there's not always a quid pro quo, of course. I think reciprocity has played a role in the evolution of these tendencies. But um, to give a typical example, uh, we, ha we have in our group of chimps, we have a very old female who can barely walk anymore. 
who has arthritis. And, and if she tries to get to the water faucet, and she lives in a very large outdoor area, and so it's a long walk to get to, to the water, uh, we see sometimes young females run ahead of her and, and collect water in their mouth and then run back to her and spit it in her mouth so that she doesn't need to walk all that way, which is altruistic behavior. And, and I, I doubt that they ever get anything back for it because this is a very old female who can, who can certainly not do great favors for them. Right. Uh, and so in, in, under all sorts of circumstances, and this is the same is true for humans, there's, there's quite a bit of altruistic behavior that is never going to be repaid. And, and so I don't think that's necessarily the motivation behind it. It may have played a role in the evolution of these tendencies, but it's not necessarily that they're thinking quid pro quo when they do something for somebody else. So when the bonobo opens the uh, cage or the door for another one before he goes to food, it's not because he would expect that behavior from the other. There is no, what you're saying is this is genuinely altruistic. Uh, he wouldn't expect the other bonobo to behave that same way. Or, Yeah, I think these tendencies, the tendencies may have evolved in a context in which they are going to be repaid one way or another. But that doesn't mean that each time uh, an animal shows their tendency or each time you do something for a friend, let's say, that you're each time thinking about the benefits that you will derive from that. I'm not sure that that's part of your motivation or that's part of the animal's motivation because that would require that they make predictions about future actions of others, and I'm not sure they're doing that. And I'm not sure we humans are doing that because in humans it's actually a bad sign if you do that. If, let's say, you're married to somebody and, and you calculate every favor that you do to this partner uh, in order to get a favor back from uh, from your spouse, uh, family therapists consider that a bad sign, that you're thinking like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think the same way with, with animals, I think they're, they're not necessarily calculating all these moves. But yes, reciprocity has played a role in the evolution of these tendencies. Let's, let me ask you about predictions. <clears throat> One of the things, you know, humans look at animals and they tend to uh, think of them as living in what the the present right now. That's it. They, you know, uh, they're not really planning for the future. They're not uh, they're not making well, predicting. I suppose they're not thinking of, uh, you know, the ramifications to actions and so on and so forth. Now, if I understand you correctly your observations of the primate world, uh, they're not necessarily just stuck in now. They do see causal consequences that uh, that are forward based on behavior and actions. Is that true, or did I get that wrong? Yeah, there are experiments that indicate that, um, that primates can think ahead. And, and actually, there's actually observations in the field. So, for example, you may see a group of chimpanzees that collects grass stems in one location and puts them all in their mouth and walks uh, several miles with them and then they arrive at the termite mountains where they're going to use the grass stems to fish for termites and eat them. Uh, and so they, they must have, a couple of hours before, been thinking, like, we're going to go to the termite mounds and we need to collect our tools at this place. Right. And, and, and people have done experiments to this effect to see if, if primates are willing to hang on tools that they... That they can only use many hours later. Uh, and, and yes, they, they have a capacity to think ahead, at least um, within the time frames that we test. We don't know how far ahead they can think. 
uh, but they don't live completely in the present now. I, I find that very interesting. Why do you think there's such a difference uh, between the way most people perceive animals and what you're really finding in animals? Does that have anything to do with, uh, you know, dominion or some such notion? Yeah, I, I think there's an enormous amount of prejudice uh, in, in the sense that we have been taught that, that we're not animals. We are different from animals. Whereas, of course, every biologist, I'm a biologist, we would say humans are animals. And, and so our basic cognition is not terribly different, I think, from that of other animals. But, but we, we have been taught this, this contrast, and that's why we, we look at animals as dumb compared to ourselves, whereas science at the moment is basically telling us, well, they're not that dumb. They, they have an enormous amount of cognitive capacities that we also have. Yeah, it, you know, recently, I, I think it was India that uh, decided that uh, dolphins, for all intent and purposes, uh, should have a, a beingness, a non-human beingness, uh, and as such be treated uh, as um, conscious beings with certain human rights. And we've had guests on this show that... Uh, claim to be animal communicators, and, um, you know, it's anecdotal, but they've given us some really interesting evidence for um, aspects of human or of uh, animal cognition that, uh, you know, men like Rupert Sheldrake, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, are, you know, constantly doing with, like, uh, where Sheldrake has conducted experiments that have demonstrated that animals somehow know when their owners are coming home, things of this nature. Uh and, and and I and I guess you know where I'm going with this is, uh, do you think that we should somehow change uh, our opinion of animals to raise them to something like what India has done? I mean, uh, how do you feel about the abuses, or do you think there are abuses within you know humans toward animals in our world today? Yeah, I'm. Not- I'm always a bit reluctant. To, and India may have done this, but I'm not sure how many captive dolphins they have. And I, I remember one time the Spanish uh, government decided that um, chimpanzees should have equal rights and should never be used in biomedical studies. But they were they were not using them at all. They'd never used them. And so to to pass laws for situations that you don't have in your country is, of course, a very simple thing to do. And I remember when this thing in Spain happened, I told them, well, if you would pass a law against bullfighting, I would be more impressed, which, of course, um, some, some parts of Spain have now done. In, in, in the U.S., we are changing the laws on chimpanzees. You may have heard about that, is that um, yes. chimpanzees in biomedical studies, at least in invasive studies, let's say, um, that's disappearing. And uh, it's not officially outlawed. But um, it's going to disappear because NIH, the, the big NIH, has decided that they're not going to do it anymore. And so we, we, we are changing our rules on certain animals. And I think in the zoo world now the big debate is about killer whales and about dolphins and about elephants. And so um, there are changing perceptions of animals, and especially with these bigger animals like elephants and killer whales. People are, are wondering, is, is the zoo the right place for them? Or if, if there are zoos, shouldn't be they, they be, become completely different than what they are today? And so um, there's quite a bit of debate, and, and that debate is fueled to some degree by all the cognitive studies that we do on animals. 
And and where I'm going, and I I don't mean to put you on the spot, but your personal opinion regarding that? Well, I'm part of Chimp Haven, which is a place that receives laboratory chimpanzees, and so I'm on the board already for many, many years, which is a place in Louisiana where we have enormous land to put chimpanzees out there. So the chimpanzees come in from laboratories, and we release them on, on, on islands of two or three acres, and give them a retirement. We're not supposed to breed with them. Sometimes there are accidents that happen, but we're not breeding with them officially. And um, we put them out there. Uh, And so I'm part of that, and I'm very supportive of the idea that chimpanzees um, should have a good life, either in zoos or in this kind of settings. Uh, And so I've always been supporting that. Okay, let's talk about punishment. Uh, there's a marvelous thought experiment. It's called the Five Monkey Experiment. I'm sure you know about it. It involves a ladder, bananas, and water spray. Yeah, that's, uh, a, that's an urban myth, though. It's not, it has never been done. It's a no, story. it's a thought experiment, right. Yeah. It's a pure yeah. thought experiment. But, you know, what is the role of punishment? I mean, uh, including, you know, the psychological side of punishment, banishment, a- isolation, in establishing and maintaining morality in your groups of primates. Well, the primates can be very negative about the behavior that they don't accept. And so you you may have, for example, a a male who attacks a female or a juvenile and and goes too far um, in the sense that uh, it it is acceptable behavior in a chimp society that a male occasionally hits a juvenile, but it's not acceptable if he bites and and injures the juvenile. And so um, uh, the the chimps can get extremely aggressive under those circumstances. And and in the wild, it's known that chimpanzees are sometimes expelled from the group under those circumstances. And so um, there is punishment. And as soon as you have a hierarchical system, which almost all the primates have and which humans have also, is where you have uh, number one and number two and number three and so on, there, there is obedience, and, and if there is disobedience, there's going to be consequences for that, and that's how the hierarchy is maintained. So punishment is uh, not unusual at all. But one thing that I always find intriguing in the apes is that there's very little maternal punishment. So uh, juveniles, until they are, let's say, four or five years old, that's about the time that they're going to be weaned, because they're being nursed for all that time. Uh, juveniles are basically, they can do whatever they want. And, and there's very little consequences. The mother never punishes them. Uh, and also other adults almost never punish them. It's very unusual. And so juveniles are sort of scot-free. They can do whatever they want. And then when they reach the age of five or six, then all of a sudden the hammer comes down and they need to start behaving in a particular way. Otherwise, they get into trouble. I, I, I don't know that that would you know work in the human condition. <laughs> no, in the human case, that's that's the big difference in humans. We try to set rules and be strict from the start. But, right. And so I'm always surprised that um, a chimpanzee mother or a bonobo mother doesn't do that at all. See, as soon as their, their children do something that they don't want them to do, let's say they approach a dangerous situation or they approach a dangerous male who's in a bad mood, uh, instead of punishing them, they just distract them and move them away and, and get them away from that situation. Uh, there's not punishment. Uh, I've never seen that. In our first hour, uh, Professor, we heard from Jason Pageant. If you're not familiar with him, uh, he's a living example of an acquired savant syndrome. He was rendered unconscious by two muggers, and he awoke instead uh, 
of the ordinary furniture salesman as a mathematical prodigy. Is there anything similar to acquired savant syndrome in the non-human animal kingdom? Acquired what syndrome? Savant. Acquired savant syndrome. Jason Padgett was a normal, you know, he, just a, the average guy. Two muggers um, knocked him, rendered him unconscious. When he woke up, he woke up a mathematical genius. He, you know, he he's <laughs> no, a marvel to the world. This. Oh, no. you haven't? No, I've never heard of this, no. Okay, so th- there isn't anything like that in the animal world. Then, okay, listen, we've interviewed a number of professional health care providers, from hospice nurses to surgeons, who've informed us that patients often know of their impending death in advance. And as a society, one of the hallmarks of human advancement, evolutionarily at least, is is considered to be the practice of burying our dead. Humans are not the only species that tends to do that, however. I mean, even ants bury their dead, have graveyards. As you point out, the awareness of death is often considered to lead to religious practices. So in your opinion, Professor, do the primates have anything at all similar to rituals that we would think might be religious in their nature? I mean, is it possible that human rituals um, aren't all that much different than primate rituals other than how we describe them? Well, the, the, I think the primates are aware of the death of others, and they react to it, and they, they seem to know that it's permanent. If, if one of them died or broke a neck or falling out of a tree or something, there's many reports on how they react to it, and they're very impressed by it. Whether they know anything about their own death is unknown to us. And, and that would be a, a big leap from understanding that somebody else is dead to knowing that yourself, yourself are going to die. Um, they, they are very emotionally affected by the death of others. They don't bury their deaths, but of course we know for elephants that they return to death, dead companions and, and turn around their bones and smell them and things like that, so, uh, which, which shows a little bit of that same interest that chimpanzees have in the death of others. Um, but we don't know about rituals or burials or that kind of things for the for the primates. No. Okay. Uh, for our listening audience, uh, you tell a lot of stories in your book uh, that share, you know, aspects or insights into animal behavior. And and unfortunately, we haven't had the time to really get into those stories. And I think part of what makes your book as inviting as it is, uh, and as readable as it is, is it's so easy to identify. So I'm going to ask you to tell one of those stories while we still have time. And tell me this, you know, share the story of Bori, if you will. You mean Bori who who had an ear infection? Yes, uh uh-huh. The old chimpanzee. So so Bori is an old female um, who... uh, who, uh, we wanted to treat for her ear infection, uh, but she didn't want to be treated. And, and she was gesturing with her hands. She kept gesturing to a table on which we had a little mirror, and we didn't know what she wanted. At some point, we gave her the mirror. And she picked it up, and she immediately angled it to her ear and then picked up a straw and started poking in her ear while using the mirror to look exactly what she was doing, which which is very interesting because because it meant that she knew how to connect her own 
her own body with the mirror image, which is which is the the core of self recognition, which we know that the apes have, but very few other animals, like your, your dog or your cat, doesn't have that. And so the apes have this kind of self awareness, where they can use a mirror to recognize themselves. And she was using it to uh, to clean out her ear. And the book is full of these stories, and and we're just out of time. Professor, I sincerely appreciate you being here. I know our entire audience does. I, I suggest everybody out there, you check out the book, The Bonobo and the Atheist in Search of Humanism Among the Primates. It's a great read. We come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Now, remember, if you have comments on our show, do please let us know. Until next time, then, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.